Jeffrey Ross retired in 2017 from a successful career as a fellowship-trained interventional radiologist and a board-certified diagnostic radiologist to become the founder and managing director of Valeshire Capital Management and Valeshire Partners. Passionate about investing wisely and teaching others to do the same, Jeff is a former contributor for The Motley Fool and a current contributor for Seeking Alpha. We start out by defining terms like mutual fund, hedge fund, venture capital, angel investing, and private equity. He teaches us the importance of diversifying beyond the market and investing in what we know, which is why many of his investments are in the healthcare and health tech space. He retired from being an interventional radiologist, but after a year and a half away, he's back to teleradiology. After being away from medicine, even for a little while, gave him some perspective, and he's able to share that with us. He's the previous secretary and treasurer of Colorado Springs Radiologists. He also sat on the board of directors as co-owner of Penrad Imaging in Colorado Springs. In addition, he was an active member of the CSRPC Investment Committee, Executive Committee, Radiology Peer Review, and Penrose St. Francis Hospital's Cancer Committee. He went to med school at the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities, and then did residency and fellowship in radiology and interventional radiology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. After being in practice for 10 years, he got his MBA from the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. This episode is brought to you by Orange County Bookkeepers Healthcare Accounting, an all-in-one accounting firm for small healthcare businesses and private medical practices. One thing that I personally love about OCB accountants is that they are QuickBook professionals with over 20 years experience focusing specifically on healthcare. They utilize a tailored approach individualized to your needs. They're a full-service bookkeeping firm specializing in accounting, payroll, taxes, and financial planning. And for our listeners, for a limited time, they are offering 25% off their services for the first three months. You can visit them at ocbmed.com, that's O-C-B-M-E-D, or call at 833-671-3873 or 949-215-6200. And check out the show notes for more information. Jeff Ross, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Brad. I'm happy to be here. So let's start by defining some terms. And we're going to assume that people don't have the financial sophistication of, say, the White Coast Coat Investors listeners. So we're going to start pretty basic and, and work our way up. Okay. So you manage a hedge fund. What is a hedge fund? What does that even mean? A hedge fund, you know, I like, when I first describe it to people, I like to break it down into things that people understand. So I, I like to compare a hedge fund to a mutual fund or an index fund. So first, let's start mutual funds and index funds. Everybody knows what an index fund is. It's a, it's a passive investment vehicle where you can put your money into it. You own some shares and it's a diversified entity to basically, if people want to invest in the stock market or bond market or whatever, they can invest in an index fund. But nobody's actively trading in the index fund. You're not Correct. paying people to do research, find out if we should continue. It's just 
like the largest companies in this country or all of the technology sector or something like that. Whatever exactly. it is, it does not require active management. Exactly, exactly. So a good segue into what a mutual fund is, that is like an index fund, but it's an actively managed fund. So it may be that uh, people want to invest in, say, the S&P 500 or large cap U.S. stocks or maybe international stocks or bonds or whatever. A mutual fund manager will look at the wide array of companies that they can invest in and they'll try to pick the best ones, the ones that they think are going to beat the market. They usually charge a fee for their efforts, uh, which makes the fees for owning a mutual fund higher than than that of uh, an index fund. So they're both pooled investment vehicles, which leads us to what is a hedge fund? A hedge fund is also a pooled investment vehicle. It's made from private investments from limited partners, So the limited partners who can invest in a hedge fund are accredited investors. And I'm sorry, I'm going to go through a bunch of definitions initially uh, for your audience. Accredited investors are people who have a net worth of $1 million, excluding the value of their primary residence, or they earn an income of $200,000 over the past two years or $300,000 per year over the past two years if they're married. So accredited investors, if they wish to become an investor in a hedge fund, they put their money in there along with other limited partners. And then the hedge fund manager takes that pool of money and invests that to the best of his or her abilities. An accredited investor, you don't need to get accredited to be an accredited. Like it's just a definition of you meet these. So in case as the physician audience, in case you hear that term, you need to be accredited investor. You don't need to then get yourself accredited. To exactly. You just you just either fit the mold because you either have this much in savings or or make this much money or you don't. Right. You don't get a little plaque on your wall or a little coffee mug that says you've achieved this status. It just yes. is what it is. And then the hedge fund itself, what what's cool about hedge funds, I think, is that they have a lot of freedom. So the fund manager usually has a specific mandate that they lay out for their investors, an investment style. And they, but they have freedom within the fund to manage it the best way they see fit. So, for instance, if you if you're in a mutual fund that only invests in large cap United States stocks, you're in that regardless of whether or not those stocks are super expensive or super cheap. You may be on the precipice of another 2008 2009 financial crisis, and you still have to invest in large cap U.S. stocks. A hedge fund manager may look at the situation and think, you know what? These are really expensive now. We've had a nice run up. Let's get out of these stocks and get into something that we think is going to do better, like maybe emerging market stocks or bonds or gold or Bitcoin or whoever. They, they can, you can invest in whatever asset class you see fit as long as you're within the mandate that you lay out in your documents. So what kind of mandate would you be what kind of mandates are there? Because it seems sounds like if you can switch from large cap to gold. Like that's a pretty wide (laughs) range when, when someone, you know, if someone gave you a lump sum of money and said, you know, could you manage this for me to be able to just switch like that? So how, how can, how do you even decide on a mandate? What what are the restrictions on that? Exactly. So, you know, there, there are over 10,000 hedge funds in the world and every hedge fund is a little bit different from the other one. It's the mandates of each fund fit with the personality and the expertise of each hedge fund manager. And so some people may come from a background where they're really comfortable investing in um, Brazilian real estate and their fund may only invest in Brazilian real estate. They may you know, do really well because of that expertise. I'm a, a physician, obviously. And so what I like to invest in is uh, healthcare and technology stocks. My, my fund is a long, short hedge fund, meaning that 
most of my investments are uh, where I invest in them, assuming that they're going to go up. I'm betting that they'll go up over the long run. But then I also hedge or protect against uh, market collapse or drawdowns, as we we say in the industry, um, by shorting companies. So if I think companies are overvalued and they're due for a plunge or maybe they have an obsolete business, I'll short those companies and that offers some downside protection in case there's a a plunge. Can a mutual fund short? Um, They can if that's part of their specific mandate. But if you you say you're just a large cap, long only fund, then no, you can't. You have to do exactly what your mandate says. So could you explain what shorting means? I I understand the concept. You're basically betting that things are going to go down instead of go up. But I just don't, I've never been able to wrap my head around like the logistics of how you do that. You're selling right. something, you're like buying something you don't own yet or something. Yeah, it's, like- it's, re- it's really cool. And it is kind of weird to think about. So what you're doing is you're borrowing shares that somebody already owns. So a brokerage firm may hold shares of say, start, let's pick on Starbucks, say Starbucks and, and Fidelity Brokerage has tons and tons of shares of Starbucks. And I'm convinced that Starbucks is going to drop 20%. Uh, in value over the next year because of their exposure to China and the coronavirus fears and all that. So maybe that's my investment thesis. What I do then to short shares is I borrow those shares. So I'm actually borrowing money from my brokerage firm to hold those shares and I'm selling them in advance. And then I'm hoping that the price will go from, say, if the, if the price per share of Starbucks is about $85 per share today, then I will hope that they'll go down and then I'll buy them back at a lower price in the future and I'll pocket the difference. So it's all kind of a virtual transaction. Obviously, you can't not own something and and sell something you don't own. But the way the investment world works is you can. You, you can kind of virtually sell them and then you have to, you're on the hook to buy them back at a later date. Okay. Clear as mud, right? Yeah, it makes a little more sense. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of weird, but 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 it's great, and it's a great way to hedge your port. You know, that's the name of the hedge fund. You hedge your portfolio against any large uh, drawdowns in the market. Is there so a mutual fund you can just buy and sell, right? They're they're completely liquid. Yep, right. right. Yep. What so about a hedge fund. So yeah, liquidity is is a big difference between mutual funds and index funds. A hedge fund, and again, it totally varies on the mandate and the the kind of the laws laid out for for each manager. But the typical uh, hedge fund investment is a minimum of three years. So if you put your money and you're locked up three years, and you and that the the reason that fund managers do that is they want to make sure that that money is secure and that if they have a a long term investment thesis. They want to make sure that money is guaranteed to be in their account for at least that minimum three-year period. Because what you don't want is, what happens a lot is you make you make an investment and then say the market crashes because of the coronavirus or whatever, whatever else is the flavor of the day that's scaring people. You don't want people to panic and pull their money out and then you have to sell at a short-term loss, uh, even though you really believe that a company is going to do well over the long term. So those lockup periods actually help the fund managers have more security and confidence in their investments that they can hold it for the duration of their investment thesis. They're able to execute what they've been saying all along. Exactly. Yep. Okay. That brings back visions of, and this shows how literate I am, the movie, The Big Short. Nice. Didn't mm-hmm. read the book. Saw the movie. It's a so, good book. Yeah. So the the Christ, uh, Christian Bale's character where, you know, he, he, they, they were like, I think maybe suing him to get their money because they just... 
thought he was doing the right thing. And then right. he sold when he thought it was the right time and made them all a bunch of money. There's a saying in the investment world that being early is the same as being wrong. And that's true. And I, I write uh, monthly letters to my clients and quarterly letters uh, to clients as well. And if you are, if you tell them, if you lay out your investment thesis and it goes down for a month or two, they people start getting really antsy and they start questioning, do you really know what you're doing? Why is it going down if you think it's going to go up? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like the old quote from, I believe it's Buffett that talks about in in the short term, the, the market is a, a voting machine. And in the long term, it's a weighing machine. So early on, it just goes up and down. And who knows why? It's kind of a popularity contest. But in the long run, the great companies will do well. The market will eventually pick the winners that deserve to win. So how does one get access to a hedge fund? Because I'm in New York and the guys with the biggest houses are the hedge fund managers, right? Mm-hmm. So how do I get a piece of that pie? Sure. So first of all, I'm nothing like the, the big New York hedge fund managers that have the biggest houses. I run a small fund out of my house in Colorado Springs. How do they get in there? So most hedge fund managers start in the investment banking world. They usually are gold, Goldman Sachs guys or Morgan Stanley or whatever. And and they do well. Solomon um, Brothers. Solomon Brothers. Yeah. Yeah. Pick, pick, your, in there. pick your firm. And they maybe did really well. And so then they decide to branch off and I want to start my own fund. And then people who believe in them will throw in 10 million, 50 million, 100 million, and maybe the firm will invest in them and they'll they'll start. Hedge funds get a bad rap. And I think it's probably well-deserved, at least currently, because they charge exorbitant fees. The standard hedge fund fee structure is it's called two and 20. And so that means they charge a 2% annual management fee. So that's just 2% every year of the total assets under management. So say if you're managing $100 million, just regardless of how the fund performs, they take 2% off the top every year. So $2 million. And then on top of it, they take a 20% performance fee. So if you make 10% in a year, then the fund manager also gets to keep 20% 20% of that 10% gain. Those are very high fees. In the past, they made more sense when there were only a few hedge funds and they actually did perform exceedingly well. In the last 10 to 20 years, hedge funds haven't been performing nearly as well. And so fees have started to come down. So for instance, in my own hedge fund, I actually think what makes the most sense and what is the most fair for my investors is I have a zero in 20 fee structure. So I don't charge any management fee at all for my hedge fund clients. And I charge still 20% of profits above what's called a high watermark. So if I if we make money one quarter, then I, I take 20% of that. If we make more money, the next quarter has to be above that level. I can take 20% of that as well. But if we lose money, I literally don't get paid anything. So if I have a bad year, it may take a year or two until I even get back up to the point where I'm making money again. And so that's how I sell it to my clients. I think that's really fair is that I don't make money unless you make money. Um, and so th- that can that can make for some lean years <laughs> sometimes, but I, it helps me to sleep at night. Those guys that own those big old mansions, they 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 definitely don't have that kind of fee structure. They take they get they get paid regardless of their performance. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, then, what's the difference between a hedge fund and a private equity firm? Or does the hedge fund sometimes invest in a private equity firm? Or am I just using that? The, those are two kind of different things. Okay. Um, and and we can get into that. So hedge funds could invest in a private equity firm, although that would be sort of unusual. Hedge funds can, like I said, they can kind of invest in anything. Private equity is investing in early stage non-public companies. 
and there's kind of three levels of this that we can get into a little bit. But so the, the most, the simplest form, the most basic form of investing in early stage or private companies or startups is called angel investing. And so what an angel investor is, it's usually a high net worth individual. Basically, it's a person who has maybe a million dollars or more in liquid liquid assets, and they invest in early stage companies. It's usually maybe a friend or family member who started some little company, and you know maybe it's the your rich uncle who who's going to help you out and give you ten thousand dollars to help start your computer company or your coffee company. And then in exchange for that, the angel investors often get a little bit of equity or a piece of ownership in the company. It's usually in very early stages of of a company's life that an angel investor will will help out an entrepreneur. The next step up is something called venture capital or VC. That's actually really similar to private equity, but it's usually focused on earlier stage companies. Venture capitalist is usually somebody that works for a firm that has a pool of money also and is dishing out that money and investing in uh, several early stage startup companies. They tend to have high risk, but also high rewards if these companies are successful, if you invest at an early stage. They usually have a big pool of funds, like a big diversified base of assets, just because lots of these companies, these startup companies, the majority of them actually will fail over the long run. And so what you're hoping for is that maybe if you have 10 investments, maybe two or three will actually be home runs that will really uh, do really well for you. And then private equity, getting back to your original question, that's like venture capital. They're generally larger institutional investors who also are investing in private companies, but they're generally larger amounts of money. So they're putting them in more established private companies that are later on in their uh, development. So it's a little bit lower risk than an angel investor or venture capitalist, and but the rewards are a little bit smaller. All of this takes place outside of the public markets. It's all private investments. Okay, so a venture capital fund is going to be maybe some institutional money and maybe a bunch of individuals. And it's kind of like a mutual fund manager, only they're doing it in private companies that are that are in their infancy yeah. um, rather than, you know... Uh, publicly traded companies on, on the market. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way to look at it. Okay. but So you would never have a hedge fund manager that says, oh, this private equity company is doing really well. Why don't we put some of our money in then? Or you could, it's just unusual. Sure, you could. It's unusual. And the reason why it's a little unusual is that these private equity firms oftentimes also... It, charge exorbitant fees. And so for a hedge fund manager to, to have profits for their investors, they're already generally charging high fees and then they're investing in something else that is charging high fees. And the chances of being profitable for your investors is actually uh, pretty slim at that point. Yeah. Fees on fees on fees. And then, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Even if you bet right, it doesn't matter because you're exactly. eating it all away with fees. Okay. Right. Okay. So something that I've heard you talk about in the past on, on other podcasts is the importance of diversifying beyond the market, right? Mm-hmm. So what mm-hmm. we all, right, I've got my 401k and then we have other ways of investing, but all of that ends up in the market, right? And I feel like, especially where the market is right now, I feel like that makes me very vulnerable. So I, I think I'm diversified because, you know, I do what index funds across the entire market, across the entire globe. Sure. Seems diverse. Why mm-hmm. is that not diverse? And, and what do I need to do to get myself diversified beyond the market? Right. Well, that's a great question. So most people, when they think of diversification, they're really thinking about just stock ownership. And so they think, well, if I own tons and tons of different stocks from all over the world, that I have a diversified portfolio. And on the one hand, it's true that you do have a diversified stock portfolio. But there are multiple other asset classes 
classes that you could and I think should be investing in because most people I think are kind of skewed by the last 11 years ever since the, the crash 2008, 2009. The market has done nothing but go up and to the right. So everyone who has invested in index funds or individual stocks or mutual funds, they've basically done well to some degree. They've either done really well or sort of well. But stocks won't go up forever. And if, if people are old enough to remember the last crash or maybe the 2000.com crash, sometimes stocks go down and they go down really fast and they can go down pretty severely. But I think it's like they tend to go down five times faster than they go up, right? Exactly. Yep. They take the elevator up and when they and they take the window down or the elevator down. So they go down much faster. And and so that's very unnerving, especially if you're or near retirement age. What you don't want is to think you're doing finally. You're you're just going to make it through retirement, and you can you can quit your job only to to lose half of your um, your lifetime savings to a stock market crash. And so it's very wise, I think, to have a diversified portfolio that's more than just stocks. And so there's lots of other asset classes you can invest in. There are bonds, there's commodities, gold, currencies, things like that. Even Bitcoin is. Some would say a new asset class. All of those different things generally will help you maintain your gains that you've had over the last, whatever, five or 10 years of investing. So if stocks maybe go down 20, 30, 40% in the next recession, bonds may go up or gold may go up and, and they kind of offset each other. And so they can help you preserve your wealth. So it's, it's generally a, a wise idea to diversify. Real estate seems to be the trend among physicians, right? On Especially mm-hmm. with all the physician Facebook groups and blogs, everyone seems to be investing in real estate. Either, either everyone's investing in real estate or I'm just in a bubble of people where everybody's investing in real estate and I'm not, maybe that bubble term should be used elsewhere. I'm not <laughs> sure. Given that that's doing so well and you live in Colorado, which is you know, a state where everybody seems to want to live. Mm-hmm. Um, why would you start a hedge fund and not just invest in some multifamily commercial real estate syndications, which seems to be so popular right now? Sure, I could if I if I wanted to. I will I will say just firstly that that's outside of my area of expertise. I like to invest kind of in what I'm really good at and where I have a competitive advantage, which is obviously healthcare. Any doctor would have a competitive advantage in healthcare because they understand it like um, the general public does not. Real estate, in my mind, is is a great asset class, but it's also just another asset class. You know, most people know Jim Cramer from CNBC. His famous quote is, there's always a bull market somewhere. And I think that's true. There's also always a bear market somewhere, meaning the market's going down in some asset class. So the the best way to think about any kind of investing is no asset class goes up forever or down forever. And so it's good, I think, to be looking for asset classes that are undervalued or fairly valued, but are moving along in the right direction. And at some point, though, they can become overvalued and you need to think about maybe trimming your holdings or uh, looking at other uh, ways to diversify your portfolio. So real estate, it has been doing well. You know, it, if you talk to people from 2005 to 2010, they'll tell you that real estate is terrible and it's horrible. And you can get really wealthy using leverage and buying real estate, but you can also go bankrupt and you can ruin your life with it if you do it poorly. I was a resident from 2006 to 2011 and I bought my apartment <laughs> and then sold it. And it was terrible. It didn't didn't work out for you. Did not work out. Did not. So that's that's the downside. And I, I will tell you though, before the two thousands, basically, so the last century, real estate was never really thought of as a great investment. It generally appreciated at at the level of inflation. It was really slow, steady, really boring. Thought of more of a, as a store of value and not as an investment. 
And it wasn't until, and this is like a whole different topic, but basically until quantitative easing and all these these little tricks to spice the market up and and um, to stir up inflation, these bubbles that were formed because of that, and the real estate bubble was obviously one of them that everybody knows about from the big short. They can they can be wildly profitable, but then they can also be wildly unprofitable as well. So you just need to be careful and kind of know the train of whatever investment class you're you're invested in. Yeah, it just seems like it's too it's too popular right now and everybody's doing too well. It's just just the way everybody's describing it is too good to be true. But right, possibly. So that's a good sign. If you start if everybody you know is telling you about it and they say you have to get into this, this is awesome. That's a sign that you're probably getting closer to the top. Yeah. And that it may be time to look elsewhere. I tried investing in what I know. So when I started out, this will show you how little I know. So I started out investing in 3D printing companies because I thought 3D printing is going to change the world. Now, I still think that 3D printing is going to change the world, right? I still think that there's a tons, ton of applications, tons of room to grow, and then it's only going to explode. Now, the question is, when is it going to explode, right? If you're too early, mm-hmm. right? Just what you said. Right, right. So so before I knew much about investing, I was following it. And I was, I, so I got lucky with Stratasys and I got unlucky with Triple D and whatever. So uh, then I also, in, at the same time, I invested in Fairway because I love shopping at Fairway. So who wouldn't? They went back. <laughs> Next investment, I use Dragon in my office for my dictations, right? And mm-hmm. then my hospital went on Dragon and bought Dragon for every single one of their desktops and, you know, and laptops. So tons of business there. So I thought, man, if two of these two independent institutions are getting Dragon, there must be something there. So I bought Nuance, which are the makers of Dragon. And that's been flat for the past seven years. <laughs> so next thing, was, I can't seem to be able to even pick a good idea. So I'm an ENT, and one thing that's popular in ENT is balloon sinuplasty. You put a balloon in some to someone's sinus that gets chronic infections, and you inflate it. This to me sounds like, for the people with, that have sinus disease, I just, I just don't think it's, I think it's a, a good tool for the operating room, but its applications are very limited. I am in the minority in this. So if I had invested in in that company, a Clarent got bought by J&J. And then a company that made a knockoff balloon, they tried to like improve on it, but same idea. And tell us, they got bought by Stryker. So I, I just, it's my area of expertise. I just can't seem to pick a good idea. I can't seem to invest in what I know. <laughs> and on top of that, like, I don't know, uh, I can't read a balance sheet. So I can't tell if a company is doing well or not or if a founder is going to get hit by a bus right after they get my investment or mm-hmm. or get divorced and lose half their company in the divorce and then you know something happens because of that so you know you're saying invest in what i know i tried doing that and failed miserably so <laughs> what what recommendations would you have to a an abysmal investing failure me. <laughs> well, first of all, that's awesome. And I say that's awesome because it is great to be humbled by your early on investments because a lot of people who are wildly successful when when they're young or just starting out in their investments, they think it's because they're highly skilled and they don't understand that actually, for the most part, they were just really lucky. Better be um, lucky so, than good. Yeah, exactly. So first I'd say don't lose heart. You've you've learned, you've paid your tuition in the, you know, the school of life. The guy named Peter Lynch, who who was a famous um, fidelity 
mutual fund manager, he made that that phrase famous, invest in what you know, that whole concept uh, in his book called One Up on Wall Street. And lots of people glom onto that. And I would say, though, that's just a starting point. It's fun to invest in what you know. It's fun to think about what companies you like, what products that you think are going to be successful or services, and think about investing in those. But I would caution everybody that that's just a starting point. The next step that you have to do is you have to figure out which companies are actually running a good business and which ones are destined to fail. Obviously, that's hard to do. Like you learn, Brad, like sometimes you think it's going to be an awesome company. It's going to be wildly successful and it's it falls flat or even goes bankrupt. And then the thing, the companies you think are going to be a failure, somebody goes in and buys them and the investors make a ton of money. So it seems to not make that much sense. I would say for physicians, physicians obviously are going to have a better, but not perfect um, feel for what medical technologies will succeed versus those that may not relative to the general public. But what's important for most people to understand is that great products, they don't always translate into profitable and sustainable businesses. Bad management can actually ruin the future of a great product or service. Talking about these um, sinoplasty balloons that you're talking about, they may have had, it may have been an okay product, but maybe they had just a killer sales team that convinced people that, hey, this is actually going to change the world. You, you guys will be crazy if you don't buy it. And maybe somebody from J&J thought we have to buy this because we don't want to miss out on the next the next fad. And it's it, there's obviously a lot more to that. But you want to start getting a feel for what companies and products and services have real staying power. And what I like to do, this is actually what I personally do. And it sounds kind of rudimentary, but it's, it's, it, it, it's more helpful than you think. Is I look at a company and I think, if I invest in this company, is this company going to be bigger and better than it is today? five to 10 years from now. And most people will say, you can't, you can't know that. You can't, you can't predict the future. But I would actually argue that you can. And I would say, if you look at a company like, say, Amazon or let's say Starbucks again, do I think that it's going to be bigger, better, more profitable five, 10 years from now than it is today? I think you can make a pretty solid argument that yes, it probably will. But then you look at a company, it's actually easier, I think, to pick the failures. If What about maybe JCPenney or Sears? I think you can look at those big box real t- retailers and say, man, I don't even know if those companies are going to exist five years from now or 10 years from now. And so why would I want to invest in a company like that? And so I think that's a great starting point for most people is to think about that. Most people tell doctors that they should just invest in index funds. You have great incomes, just uh, volume cost average, um, whatever you're doing. And over time, you'll do well. I totally agree with that. But I actually think it's fun to invest in companies that you believe in. And when you see a company like you like 3D printing, if you think these companies are going to do well, that they're going to be bigger and better five to 10 years from now, and you want to see them succeed, it's fun. It's cool to be kind of their cheerleader and to, and to uh, put a little money to work. And you know, you'll, you'll, you'll still have a good income whether or not you succeed. So it's not necessarily the best way to make a lot of money, but it's a cool way to help shape the future of medicine. And if you, if you want to see um, their products succeed, then become an investor in their company. That's a really long answer, but... What about non... What about non-market investments? So like you see you see a before a Clarent was went public, right? And I actually I don't can't even remember if they went public before they were bought by by J&J. But you know, let's say I'm starting to do a procedure and I really like the product and I think it's going to change the way ENT is is done. In fact, there is a pro, and I think it's I think it might be made by uh Stryker. 
that I really, I am a believer in it. And I think it, it fits this niche market and it's an office procedure, which ENT is really in a lot of ways moving out of the operating room and into the office. We're able to do more and more in the office. Let's say it's an independent company. How do I gain access to that as an investment without like over leveraging myself, right? Right. It's, it's still, I'm not, I'm not, we're not working with institutional money. We're not working with pooled investment. I'm not a syndicate, right? So it's just my money. So if I if I invest enough of it that it actually makes a dent in them, it's going to make a huge dent in me. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, I tell you though, these small companies are usually they're if they're not a public company for the most part, especially these little healthcare companies, they are very small companies with just very small operating budgets for the most part. So a lot of the times, if you invest say anywhere from five to $50,000, which is doable for most doctors and especially for specialists, that can be very beneficial to them. And it's it's not going to make or break you and your financial future. So that can be a good way to do it. I, there are also a lot of platforms out there that help investors to just make the process uh, smoother and and help you to kind of study and learn about a lot of these little startup medical companies. Angel MD is a company that I had spent time working for uh, in the la- in the last year and a half or so, and they have a cool platform that basically helps doctors learn about tons of startup companies, and then they have algorithms that help the best companies that they think have the best potential for returns on investment. Um, physicians can actually invest in these companies. What I would recommend just from my own experience is these private companies are extremely, extremely difficult to pick winners and losers from. And the vast majority of them become losers, which is unfortunate. Most people he'll hear stories about you know people who invested in Facebook because they knew Mark Zuckerberg at college or something like that. And there's lots of stories like that. But those are literally you know one in a thousand or one in ten thousand as far as those stories go. Most of these companies end up returning nothing for investors. So if yeah, that selection bias. You're gonna they, you're gonna you only hear about the successes. You don't hear about the failures. Exactly. Exactly. You're not gonna be. They hear the the guy who invested in uh, Bookface, which yes. uh, did not do well and lost all his money. Yeah, exactly. And so I tell people, if you want to invest in those companies, that's awesome. Have fun doing it. But please invest in a portfolio of companies. Don't invest in just one and don't, it's definitely don't bet the farm and, you know, your inheritance on it. Get a portfolio, pick 10 or 20 of these companies or, you know, invest in a pooled investment structure where you can invest in a fund that maybe holds 20 of these companies or 40 of these companies because the vast, like I said, the vast majority will fail. A few will do okay, but a couple of them will be home runs. And those are the ones where you can make the the big life-changing gains on. So you're basically acting like a venture capital firm, right? Yes. You're, you're, you're swinging for the fences and your batting average is going to be garbage, but you're hoping that one of those, one of those pitches connect. I don't watch baseball, so I'm hoping mm-hmm. this analogy works. Um, <laughs> one of those pitches connects and and you can knock it out of the park. And the fact that the other nine failed, not a great batting average, but eh, for baseball, it's not too bad, I guess. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So what I would tell people is if say you have $100,000 that you can invest and you really want to invest in private companies, I would say split that up and put $10,000 into 10 different companies. And hopefully a couple of those will do really well and they'll make it worth it because, you know, seven or six to eight of them will probably fail and go to zero. So um, you want to spread your risk. That's the best way to think about it. And Angel MD, I would imagine, is is not the only source of investments like it like that, where you're able to invest in early stage companies, but put a small amount here and a small amount there. I would imagine that there are other 
you know, being the internet age, that there are other platforms that are similar to that for other types of investments and probably also in the in the healthcare space. That's correct. Yeah, there are other ones. I know that AngelMD is the biggest of the companies and they kind of have the lead dog advantage. And also you don't need to go through a platform. A lot of doctors just know of maybe a partner or somebody who's kind of entrepreneurial who maybe has developed a medical device. And if you want to invest with them, you can totally do that. It's your prerogative. You can become a limited partner. You just sign some agreements and um, usually the, the business owner will make it as easy as possible for you to get invested with them. But again, I would just always yeah. tell people to don't exercise caution. Don't yeah. bet the farm. Yep. So you were you were a full-time radiologist. You started managing the hedge fund. You started working with the Angel MD. And now you're back to practicing radiology. I, I just I think it's so interesting because as physicians, we spend so much time and effort training to become a physician, right? High school, mm-hmm. get the best grades. College, get the best grades. Go to med school. You want to get a competitive residency. You're studying. You're doing your research. And then once we're attendings, the dream no longer is practicing medicine. The dream becomes using your medical knowledge to do something other than practicing medicine. Like mm-hmm. it's almost like we're we're like a dog chasing a car, and <laughs> once we've got the car, we don't know what to do with it. So, but you you manage to, uh, to to step away from clinical medicine, but now you're back again. So right. tell, tell us, tell me how that how that happened. Man, go figure. It's funny. It's funny that I'm back. I, I, but I, well, I don't even know where to start. So I, I got out of practice in 2008 and I, and I worked as an interventional radiologist and a diagnostic radiologist in Colorado, became partner in my group, loved it. It was great. And then like you're saying, I, I was the dog that caught the car maybe four or five years into it. And then I was like, well, so is this all there is? And and, and there's got to be more to this. More, uh, it, it, it doesn't feel as fulfilling as I thought it would feel. On the side, while that was all happening, I actually have always loved investing. And so I started te- um, teaching people. I actually started my own blog in like 2009 or 10 or something, teaching people how to invest on their own. And then from that, I got picked up by a couple prominent kind of investment firms. One, one's called uh, The Motley Fool and another one is called Seeking Alpha. And I started writing for them. And I developed enough of an audience that liked my style and they started asking me if I could manage their money for them. And I'm like, oh, I'm just a doctor. I don't, I don't manage money. But then the idea got into my head, of course. And I'm like, wow, what if I could do that though? Wouldn't that be cool? And so that's where I started thinking about if I did manage people's money, how would I want to do that? And, and that's where I started doing a lot of research into registered investment advisory firms and hedge funds and things like that. And I ended up starting both of those. So Valeshire Capital Management is an RIA, a registered investment advisory. And and then Valeshire Partners is a hedge fund. And I just had so much fun building that and growing that, that by the time around 2015, it actually got to be busy enough and I had enough clients I wasn't making a lot of money, but I was having a lot of fun doing it and I was super busy doing it. So I actually needed to cut back from full-time medicine. I actually gave up doing IR at that point and moved to just doing diagnostic radiology until the end. It's kind of like this podcast for me. Exactly. A lot of time, little to no revenue. (laughs) Right. You do it because you love it, you know, and you hope that you can uh, support your family on it. And, but, but that takes a lot of time and it's, it's harder than it looks to start your own business for sure. And so fast forward today, when I, I actually ended up retiring completely from medicine at the end of 2017, and then I went back and got my MBA in finance and that was fun, but I was kind of like twiddling my thumbs at the end of that and like, well, what am I going to do now? And then I started looking at the clock and thinking, you know, I've been out of medicine for a year and a half. I, actually miss doing radiology. And so that got me just thinking about what if I went back and did radiology 
and um, I found a great teleradiology position. So I, I work from home right now as a teleradiologist for a firm out in, or for a group out in New York, where I do that full-time. And then also full-time, I run Valeshire. So I like to say for the full-time hours, I do Valeshire, and then all the rest of the time I run, or for full-time, I do the uh, teleradiology, and all of the rest of my hours, I do Valeshire. And I'm just having a ball. It's, it's, uh, it's really fun to be back doing radiology. And uh, it, it helps me to support my family. I have a daughter who's going to college next year and uh, just a lot of other things going on. So it's, I just feel really, really fortunate to be able to do two completely different careers. Um, they're both kind of outlets for me. Uh, and I'm having a great time doing it. Yeah, I think that's interesting. You know, the, gra- the grass is always greener, right? Like it, it just seems what the other person is doing. Oh, look at, you know, look mm-hmm. at her. She, she started her own company and she's not seeing patients anymore. She's just using her medical expertise to, to advise and consult. And, and, and then, you know, you, you get into this space and, and then you miss where you were. So right. I, I just, mm-hmm. I think that that should all, that should give us all a little bit of perspective in terms of appreciating where we are rather than just looking to the other you know, the other side. Exactly. And I was one of those guys, I got to tell you, I was like the, you know, the guy leading the charge for get out of medicine, do something different with your life. You did one career that took up 20 years of your life. Now let's try to do something totally different. But, you know, we all went into medicine for a reason way back in the day. we can remember, we used to be super excited and we wanted to use our use our aims to learn everything we could to help people and make the world a better place. And so I kind of feel like I got that love back again. I almost feel like a resident again, where I'm just having a great time learning about uh, things and calling docs and 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 talking over their uh, their imaging studies with their patients and helping them figure out what the best treatment uh, plans are. Yeah, and for for the physicians out there who are maybe discontent, I would say you know the grass isn't as green as it looks on the other side. It's awesome to have a side gig like I do, but there's also something to be said for just being content with where you are, um, and and being thankful for uh, for being a physician, which is really a great job still. And I think that's a great way to close. Um, where can people find you online? Uh, the easiest way, well, a couple of things is, so my, my website is valeshire.com. That's V-A-I-L-S-H-I-R-E.com. I'm, I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn, um, as well as, uh, Twitter. My, my Twitter handle is at valeshirecap, C-A-P. And so if you want to find me, you can reach out to me, feel free to call or send me an email as well. I'm happy to respond to anybody who has any questions about anything. Jeff Ross, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Brad. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This interview should not be considered personalized financial advice, and we will not be held liable for the use of any information contained within this interview. It is your responsibility to verify anything you've heard using other trusted and reputable resources.